a bit of a disclaimer about the message today. Uh, the message is one of those that you're going to think about later on, and it's going to help unlock the Old Testament for you. It's going to help unlock the Old Testament prophets specifically for you. You're probably going to reflect on it and say, that is an important message. It's going to train us and teach us an awful lot. But let me be very clear on this one. This is not one that you go walking out whistling out of church. This is the one where somebody goes, how is church today? And you go, okay, because it's, it's a pretty heavy message, but I think it's very important. And I think that uh, truly, if we can soak in it for a bit, if we could really understand it, I think that we will begin to see the heart of God emerge in the Old Testament. Too many people say that the Old Testament is, is one God and the New Testament's another God. And of course, that is not true. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is that true? Yeah, so we're going to see some of those pieces get connected today. The best way to get anything out of these messages is to import yourself in, to try to say, what would it be like if I was experiencing this? The other thing is to say, if it happened to them, could it happen to me in the sense of what caused their challenges, and are those things still present? Remember Ezekiel, this series that we're walking through, it's a seven-part series through the book of Ezekiel, I called Impossible Hope. Ezekiel lived and ministered during the darkest period in national Israel's history. It was so bleak, so brutal. And we're going to study kind of all the ins and outs of that, but the biggest question we're going to ask is why? Why did God need to bring judgment upon his chosen people? Because really, they are the apple of God's eye. They are special no nation on the planet has ever had the engagement with God that the Jewish people have. And yet, we find out that not only are they getting kicked out of their land, their city's going to be destroyed, their temple was destroyed, and it was a sad day of despair. So how in the world did we get there? Probably the best way to make this both personal and historical is I want to begin with us today. I want to talk about our challenges today, things that we walk through today, so that as we go into the ancient world, you can see patterns and begin to say, oh, I would connect that dot and connect that dot and connect that dot. Even if I don't make it as the preacher, you will have a lot of things spinning around in your head. So let's just jump into it. The Bible says we have three enemies. Yes, world, flesh, devil. That's it. It's not your neighbor. It's not people that disagree with you politically. It's not people across the aisle. It's not people that live a different lifestyle than you. It is world, flesh, devil. All your angst, all your frustration, all your anger, all your prayers need to go towards those three. People aren't your problem. World, flesh, devil. That's how it works. Now, we're, we're pretty clear on the flesh part. That's, that's us. We understand ourselves to say... Well, the flesh part is the part of me that still doesn't look like Jesus. Would you agree, and I, I don't think it's too far, would you agree that you and I don't quite exactly look like Jesus in every way? Is that true? Yeah, that, I mean, that's why we're constantly learning and growing and surrendering, right? So I don't think that's very different or unique for people to try to understand, man, I got parts of me that need to change. That's the flesh. The devil, simple, that is a supernatural entity that runs a team that is anti-God. All right, we got that. 
The one that seems to be a bit more tricky is the idea of the world. What does it mean, the world? So let me give you the definition. It's anti-Christian society around us. And this is where our tribalism kicks up. Oh, those are the bad guys. I know them. It's us versus them. They're the people in society that disagree with me. No. No, that's not true. As a matter of fact, anti-Christian society is, it sounds nefarious, but really it's selfish humanity mixed with evil influence. That's what creates it. And here's the kicker. We're part of it. Man, there's no such thing as black and white, bad guys, good guys, them, us. Man, we're all in this, right? We're part of it. We're feeding into it. We're praising it. We're role modeling it for our children. Why? Because we live out our cultural core values, our cultural standards, our cultural behaviors. We have allowed our environment to shape us as Christians too much, in my opinion. And we have to ask the question, well, why? Why is it so difficult? Why are there so many things pulling at us? What is making it difficult not simply just to walk like Jesus walked? And I'm going to suggest to you, it is a combination of four power concepts. Four power concepts in our life. So if you're a note taker, write these down. They're very simple. Here we go. Number one, write this down. What we want. What we want. Does anybody know what humanity wants, what we all want? What we want is what we want when we want it. That's what we want, right? (laughs) I mean, it's just pure selfishness. We were born broken, we live broken, and we have this kind of more for me attitude, right? Nobody ever has to train a child to be more selfish. Is that true? Anybody ever worked with kids? You're never like putting them through the training. Now remember, Johnny, those are your blocks. If anyone touches them, you punch them in the face. Nobody ever has to say that. Nobody ever has to say, gosh, remember, the world's all about you. Okay, we just instinctively go that route. So what we want is everything to tailor to us. That's what we really want. What's so intriguing is that how do we do that when there's a God? How can it be all about us if there's a God? Well, maybe some people don't believe in God. So in ignorance, we can say the world revolves around us. But if you do believe that there's a God, and obviously that's what I teach, that's what I believe the Bible is very clear about, if there is a God, the only way you can make it about yourself is if you believe you're a competing authority with God. And that means there's pride involved. Pride is so insidious. As long as we are still saying to God, well, God, you have an opinion, I have an opinion, I swear. I'm on a good day. I am giving you 80% of my life. You should go with that. That's a good deal. I could totally be at 60% by tomorrow. I would take it right now, right? So there's what we want. That is one thing that's pulling at us. Number two, write this down, what Satan wants. What Satan wants. Satan hasn't changed his strategy since the Garden of Eden. Don't change it if it works. Everybody remember the Garden of Eden story? So you got Adam and Eve. They're doing great in the garden. God is with them. Everything seems to be working. They're doing what they were built to do. They have fulfillment. But there was that one tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden that God told him not to touch. So up rolls a serpent, right? So this is Satan. He's, you know, it's not just a talking snake. It's a Satan snake. But anyway, it's not important. So he comes up and has a conversation with Eve. And he's like, hey, did you ever try that fruit? And she's like, no, God told us not to touch that. And he's like, well, why is that? She's like, I don't know. He just said so. 
He's like, well, that's kind of weird. Man, it looks good. She's like, yeah, I totally agree with you, but he said not to touch it. And he's like, huh, that's really weird because you know what I wonder? I wonder if there's something pretty awesome there and he just doesn't want you to have it. I mean, here's the weird thing. He made it, right? If he made it, it's natural. You know what I'm saying? Like, if that's kind of how he created it, why in the world? Are you telling me you're going to spend the rest of your life not eating the fruit? That doesn't even make any sense. Like, it's here right in front of you. Like, that's how you were built, man. You want that kind of stuff? Let's just roll with it. You only live once. Anybody notice some of those things in our culture? <laughs> so she says, yeah, okay. That snake has a good idea. Which, by the way, should never be a phrase that you say. Right? So she eats of the fruit. It separates us from God because that was rebellion. And we've been spiraling into chaos ever since. But here's an interesting thing about that story. What did the snake get out of it? It's not like he had a, a fruit stand on the side and he was trying to maybe like get some new clients, you know, and he's like, what we need is more fruit eating around here. Okay, he's, he doesn't get anything from it. He doesn't ever set up and go, well, right now I'm setting up a serpent worshiping team, and if you'd like to be a part of it, he didn't get anything out of it, right? So what was his motivation? Why go in there and mess with Eve at all? Because if he can get her to separate from God, he wins. You see, he already tried to take the throne. He can't. So he's going to try to hurt what God loves, and take what God cares about. What God cares about is relationship with his creation. As long as he messes that up, if he can get you distracted, it's as good as getting you dead. So as he breaks human beings apart from God, he feels good about it. Now, is he going to seek worship in other areas? Sure. But what he really wants, more than a big tribe thinking he's amazing, what he really wants is God not to have his children. That's a win. Okay, so what we want, number two, is what Satan wants. So write down number three, what America wants. What America wants. The king of America is self. Let's be very clear about that. The queen of America is money. Money serves self. If you keep going down the line, princes and princesses are things like independence, pleasure, escapism. You can always follow the chain back to what's serving what. The core values of self in America show up in our media, education, government, policies, fads, and expenditures. This is not only an American problem, it's a human problem. Every nation has its own version of selfishness, but, but we are pretty overt about the fact that in America, self is the number one thing. It's all about you right? Number four, write this down, what God wants. What does God want? God wants our undivided loyalty. He wants our love. What's the problem with that? It's clashing with the other three. And that's the tension. That's the frustration. That's why things aren't easy. That's why we can't just decide, I'm going to be the best person on the planet. That's why we're always wrestling to be like Jesus, because you have these Four competing core power concepts biting at you, pulling at you, straining at you, and it's creating attention. But we have to be God-focused. Now, if you're brand new to Christianity or brand new to church or brand new to the Bible, you, you begin to hear this stuff, like, oh, God needs to be worshipped, God needs to be worshipped, and you're like, man, maybe he should go to therapy. You're good enough in yourself. 
you don't need everybody, right? I mean, is, you start going, man, you're an egomaniac. What is wrong with you? Right? Very narcissistic to be like, oh, worship me, worship me. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. Is God allowed to create beings that are built to worship him? Yes. Did he do that? Yeah. But it's bigger than that. We need to worship God more than he needs to be worshiped. Why? Because it's the only thing that keeps us alive. Let me explain this. There was a time when we weren't, right? Nothing existed in what we call our universe. So it's just God and the supernatural beings. Boom, he creates our universe. That is everything that we know, all of our reality. He creates our reality. If he created it all, he is the source of all life that we could ever imagine. He's the source of it. In addition, he's the source of all that's good. Meaning, anything apart from him is bad and death. When we worship God, we center in and we come alive. It unlocks what we were built to do. If we separate from him and focus on ourselves, we begin to shrink and die because we can't make eternal life. Whatever you worship, it better be able to handle your afterlife, right? Because this isn't just us. We are living from now till forever. We have a beginning, but we have no end. So if that is the case, we need to be God-focused. It's the only way we make sense. It's the only way we have purpose. It's the only way that we have meaning. We have to bend our whole will towards God and let him inform who we are and what we do because that's what we were built to do. We desperately need to worship God. So what do we do if that is necessary and we're really struggling? Here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you or on the app, it's simply this. We must protect our core allegiance. We must protect our core allegiance. We are above all Christians. We are above all children of God. In our prioritization, we must have nothing more great than God. He is to be preeminent. He is to be number one in all ways. Other things may be good. They cannot be number one. That is his spot and his spot alone. Amen? Amen. So we're going to jump into this series again that we're in part four of seven. And so after today, we're already over halfway through. So if I'm going to catch you up, if you weren't here with us, the first week we learned that there's a guy named Ezekiel. He was a prophet and a priest. God calls him, pulls him up into heaven and shows him heavenly reality. Freaks him out, messes with his head. God's like, hey, I'm real. I never want you to doubt me and I need you to do stuff. Week two, we studied what's his assignment. His assignment was to tell the Jews, this is not an accident, you're not victims, this whole thing is God coming after you in judgment, I need you to turn around and repent, if you will, I know you won't, so I just want to be very clear why this is happening, nobody ever gets to tell me I didn't know. Week three, we learn that God uses Ezekiel like a living, prophetic play actor acting out his message, like in weird, creepy ways, right? Anybody else traumatized from last week? Okay, fantastic. Well, you'll be traumatized by this week too, praise the Lord. 
Okay, now week four, we are just centering on the question, why? What happened with Israel that was so bad that it got this intense? Why would God have to hit a reset button and start over with his chosen people? What was happening to the Jewish people, unfortunately, is not unique to them. And it's something that we need to take a look and examine ourselves too. So let's dive into it. What did they do that was so serious? Just write one word. There's an answer to this, and it's one word. You ready? Idolatry. That was the main problem. And you're like, well, what's idolatry? Idolatry is the worship of false gods. You're like, oh, good. I don't do that. Are you sure? Well, okay, so let's go ancient, and then we'll go modern. So in the ancient world, everybody believed in gods. There was never a question. Nobody was like, hey, do you believe in God? They were like, which one? There was all kinds of gods. Man, if you were in the Norse area or the uh, kind of the Scandinavian region, you'd follow Norse mythology. That was Odin and Thor. If you were in Egypt, you had like the sun god Ra and all their pantheon of gods. If you were uh, in Greece, you had Greek mythology or Roman mythology, depending on the empires, right? You had all this stuff. Everybody believed there was a God. And the reason why is because stuff was happening in the universe around them that they weren't causing. So who's running it? Who's running the show? Who's running nature? Who turns on the rain, turns off the rain? Who's the one that determines when an earthquake is going to happen? This whole idea about it's all an accident seems stupid to them, right? So they were like, no, 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 someone's doing it. Now we can't see them, they're supernatural beings. So they called them gods and goddesses and they would worship them because the whole point was try to figure out which is the best one for you, the best one in your area and don't tick them off. So you'd have like temples and shrines and people would give them offerings and the whole point was trying to make sure you were on their good side. Hmm. Interesting thing about that was, since they're invisible, you kind of wanted to have memories of them or reminders of them all the time. If you're really going to honor them properly, you also want to honor them at home. You can't make a whole temple in your home. So what they ended up doing was they would make little statues, okay? And here's the whole premise. Let's say, for example, anybody want to pick an animal for me? Somebody pick an animal. Panda, okay, so we're gonna serve a panda god. Oh, well done, that was excellent. Okay, so, so I'm totally into the panda god, and, and I find out I'm gonna put like a panda's head on like a person's body, and I'm gonna make a totem, a talisman, a statue. I'm gonna put a little thing on my mantle that says I'm totally into panda god. And then everybody that comes in, they're like, you're into panda god, I'm into panda god, let's talk about panda god. And then you were like, oh, I gotta remember to pray to panda god because I forgot, right? And I'm never gonna get the chow mein I want if I don't pray <laughs> to the panda god, right? So, so it'll give me a tummy ache later from MSG, but that's okay because it's worth it. Anyway, so, as you're praying to the little panda god, you have what's called an idol. Now, the idol is the physical representation of the panda god. You know the panda god's not hiding in your little stick, but it's a reminder. And so the panda god's like, dude, you, you got me in your mind, right? And you go, yeah, I got my little statue. They knew they weren't praying to that. It was what it represents. Those are idols. And you go, well, we don't do that today. Ah, but we do. We just have different ways of doing it. So let's use a couple examples. Some of y'all are actually rolling around day by day in your idol. 
okay? So you have a car that represents what you love the most, which is your money. And so you're going to show everybody else that you serve that money God, and it happens to look like a sweet car, okay? Now, some of you, it's your house. Some of you, we got these things that were like, Man, I, I need everybody to know if they're going to ask me, oh, you worship money too? Sweet, I do too. We have a lot of stuff in common, okay? And we end up having conversations about that. Now, you go, whoa, 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 hold on a second. There's nothing wrong with me having good things. I agree with you. There's nothing wrong with going, I worked really hard to get that car. I agree with you. What I'm trying to tell you is there's one thing to appreciate something. There's another thing when it owns you. How do we know when it owns you? If God ever told you to get rid of it, would you? Now, every addict says they can quit anytime until they have to quit. Then you realize you're an addict. So I'm not quite sure that you could get rid of it if he wanted you to. And wherever there is a clash between your thing or your person and God, and God loses, it's a problem. Some of us, it's our kids. You're like, hey, man, step off that. Kids are always good. I didn't say kids were bad. I said, you're the problem. (laughs) And here's the interesting thing. So how could they be an idol? Well, some of you, your whole identity is wrapped up in being a mom or wrapped up in being a dad. And it's how you see life. Actually, before you think of yourself as a Christian, you think of yourself as a parent. And what ends up happening is you start living your life through them. You become obsessed with them. They start becoming an extension of you. Then you sign them up for 18,000 things. I couldn't possibly be part of a women's group because I have to go take my children to 13 things this week. And then I couldn't possibly have quiet time because I have children. I couldn't possibly go to church because I have children. I couldn't possibly have a relationship with God because I have children. What did you say? Did you just say your kids got in front of God? Whoa, 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 whoa. We are way out of line. You just took what God gave you as a gift and you made it an idol. Stop doing that. We can't do that. Now, we all wrestle with this stuff, do we not? We all have stuff like that. I have stuff like that, right? Sometimes for me, it's escapism. Boy, I bought into that one hard, right? I'm pretty busy. I do a lot of stuff. I got to just kind of chill out. And if God's like, hey, are you still on the clock? I'm like, no, God, I'm escaping. I'm off the clock. Okay, so we all have stuff in our lives. So those are modern day idols. We still struggle with them. So how did it get to the point in Israel where not only were they into idolatry, but you could barely even see God anymore? They had this weird hybrid, we're kind of into God, we're kind of into other stuff, we're kind of into this God, this goddess, this thing. How did it get to where you couldn't even tell they were a Yahweh-based nation? How did they slip so far? Well, there's actually two simple reasons for it. They might be a bit convicting for us. Number one, they succumbed to their own fleshly impulses. Two, they allowed the cultures around them to bend them. That's how it happened. Is that possible that you would struggle with those things? Yes. Is it possible that the church today is struggling with those things? Yes, it is. Right? Instead of transforming the cultures around them, they morphed into the cultures around them. And that became a major problem. It always starts with a compromise. See, Israel had a very tough assignment. Their assignment was to be different. Their assignment was to have kosher laws, 
I can eat this, I can't eat this, the whole thing about I touch this, I don't touch that, I have to have festivals and rituals and I have this and then I wash my hands and I go to temple and I got Sabbath. They had a whole bunch of stuff that they were supposed to do that made them very odd. It was a lot of extra work in their mind. Now the trade-off was supposed to be that they had God in their midst, they had miracles in their midst, they were blessed more than any other nation on the planet. They had God talking to them. That was the trade-off. And you would assume that that would be a good enough trade-off, but here's the problem. When God blesses you consistently enough, you start to take it for granted. You don't see it as a blessing anymore. You see it as normal. And when you start seeing it as normal, you start seeing all the stuff you don't get to do that your neighbor gets to do. Well, they don't have to do the kosher laws. Well, they don't have to do this. And you start longing for the freedoms that those other people have. You ignore your own blessings, and now you're bitter. Has that ever happened to a Christian? Of course it does. You are saved from your sin. You are purified in your core. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You have been given power and authority. It should be a trade-off for you not being an idiot. Right? That's what I keep telling myself. Should be a good trade-off. Unfortunately, it's now become so normal to me, I'm only thinking about what I don't have. And that causes a bitter heart. So they wanted what everybody else had, so they just compromised and went into it. And they were like, well, I could probably add this in. Well, I could probably do this. I could probably let this slide. I could probably have this. Right? That happens to all human beings. It seeped into their hearts. What began as a temptation turned into sin, later became the fabric of their soul. After hundreds of years of denying God's pursuit and correction, it became part of the fabric of who they were and how their hybrid culture ran. Listen to how God viewed the depth of it. Ezekiel 14.1, certain elders of Israel came to Ezekiel and sat before him, and the word of the Lord came to him and said, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Once again, it's not about appreciating. It's now about worshiping. That's a big deal, right? We become what we worship. You've heard that? We are led by our loves. You heard that axiom. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All of these speak to the fact that when our focus is deeply on something, it changes us. It directs our attention, our motivation, our behavior, and our action. When we revere something, we instinctually try to become that. Once we deeply love something, we're willing to give anything for it. All that is wonderful if it's God. All of that is destructive if it's not. Does that make sense? When you become something, you start to act like it. And that happened to Israel. Would you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 22? Ezekiel chapter 22. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 709. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. So if it sounds a little bit different than the one that you're reading out of, that's why. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 6 now, I'm going to read through a big block of Scripture, and the purpose of that is to show the piling on. I'm not going to break it apart, each line, like I normally do, because we need to see it in its whole. I will then recap it for you. This is one of the passages that God describes the problems that were occurring 
in the nation of Israel. Here we go, Ezekiel 22.6. Behold, the princes or leadership of Israel in you, he's talking to the nation of Israel, in you, every one of these leaders, according to his power, has been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The foreigner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood and people in you who eat on the sacred mountain areas. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another one violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord Yahweh. Go to verse 26. Her priests have done violence to my law and profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Her leadership and her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord God hasn't even spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy. They have extorted from the foreigner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Does that sound like a problem? Yeah. So let's, let's recap. Civic leadership is corrupt. Religious leadership is corrupt. They're committing religious sins. They're committing sexual sins. There's disrespect, corruption, pride, injustice, and the list goes on. Here's the key problem. They were the nation to show the nature of God. Is that what God is like? If any unbeliever came to examine the society, would they see the face of God? No. And therein lies the problem. They're not just like any other nation. Now I ask you a question. Does the secular America today see the face of God in the church? I don't know. Depends. Right? We are the reflection. We have that calling. We have that assignment. We're not normal people. We're Christians. Listen to the degree of the sin. God said in Ezekiel 5, 5, thus says the Lord Yahweh, this is Jerusalem. I set her in the center of all the nations with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the surrounding nations, against my statutes more than all the countries around her. Like, they're not even just kind of blowing it. They're so far gone, even the nations around them are like, man, you're screwed up, right? Is it possible that a Christian could be so messed up that they make their non-believing neighbors look moral in comparison. Yeah, happens all the time. What's wrong with that picture, right? I mean, this is how deep it was. This is so serious, and it's so bad 
And I'm going to explain why it's so bad, but it's so bad God is using language he never uses. He says stuff he never says. In this one moment of history, he's using stuff that you would never believe comes out of the mouth of God. You're like, whoa, what are you talking about? I'm talking about, he said, and I'm bringing in warriors to, on my behalf to kill every man, woman, and child. When do you hear God talking about killing children? He said, I'm going to bring a siege against you by a nation. They're going to starve you out so bad, you're going to eat your afterbirth from your children. And when you're done with that, you're going to eat the children. That's messed up. Like it's the darkest stuff, the weirdest stuff. Why would God say that? What pushed it to such an extreme for God to say, I have no pity for you. I have no compassion anymore. You're done. What would have taken it that far? Well, I'm going to tell you there's two things you need to understand and it will unlock it completely. Not only will you understand it, you're going to agree with it. If you're a note taker, write these two things down. These will unlock all of it. You ready? Number one, ancient covenant. Ancient covenant. Number two, Israel's uniqueness. Israel's uniqueness. If you can understand those two things, all of that begins to make sense. So let's make sense of it, okay? Talk about ancient covenant. A covenant is a contractual agreement. I'll do this, you do that, we adhere to the rules, we both know our parts, do your part. If you don't do your part, there's gonna be serious ramifications. You guys know like an NDA, right? Non-disclosure agreement, right? They would say, hey, you're gonna keep your mouth shut. If you don't, I'm gonna come in and sue you for everything you have. That's a threat, that's a warning. Don't violate this contract. We have a contract, you signed it. We have contracts in business all the time, but we also do relational contracts. Whenever you go to a wedding, that's what's occurring. I vow this, I vow that. We now have a contract under God relationally, and you're all witnesses. We even signed a piece of paper with the state government to say we're under contractual obligation. If there is unfaithfulness, that has ramifications. Does that make sense? So we're pretty familiar with contracts and covenants. All right, so here's the deal. God signed a contract with Abraham when they first got started. All Jews come from Abraham. He signs a contract with Abraham, clarifies the contract with Moses, reiterates the contract with Joshua, reiterates the contract with David. All throughout their history, he said, you guys signed this. I don't care whether you personally signed it or not. You guys are under this contract. I signed it with you. And there's going to be stuff I'm going to bring to the table and stuff you're going to bring to the table but we're not playing around. This is very serious business. No group on the planet ever had opportunity to engage with our God this deeply. And it all goes back to Mount Sinai when Moses was getting the 10 commandments. That's where the story begins. So I'm gonna jump back to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and I'm gonna share with you. It all started with the heart, okay? So here we go. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. He chose you above all peoples as you are this day, 
So circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. That's how it starts. Israel just got pulled out of Egypt by radical miracles. We're talking about the plagues. We're talking about crossing the Red Sea. They came out. They met at a mountain, and God says, you're a nation. They said, we're slaves. He said, you're my nation. And I want to tell you how we're going to run it. I'm in charge here. You're not in charge. Here's the rules. And he lays out all these details. This is how we're going to handle our civic. This is how we're going to handle our legal. This is how we're going to handle our religious. I'm telling you guys everything you need to do so that you are not constantly going, well, I didn't know. You do know. I'm going to give you priests that are going to tell you. I'm going to give you Levites to explain it to you. I'm going to give you all this stuff. And a lot of it is going to be based on this contract that there's blessings and curses. Chapter 11, verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but you turn away from the way that I'm commanding you and go after other gods that you have not known. From chapters 12 to 27, he lays out specifics, but in 28, he lays out blessings and curses. 28.1, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments I commanded you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations on earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. You say, what blessings? Your harvest will be blessed, your pregnancies will be blessed, your herds and flocks will produce in a massive way, and you will become a shockingly wealthy. You will have protection from all your enemies. As a matter of fact, I will make them afraid of you so you can dwell in peace. I will give you rainfall every time you need it, and you will live in a state of abundance. That sounds pretty awesome, right? That's what God's going to bring to the table. If you obey me, this is what you get. They're like, yay. He's like, all right, verse 15. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do the commandments and statues that I commanded you today... Then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. What are those? Your nation will start to fall apart. Your flocks and herds and land will not produce. Your pregnancies will fail. Your mind will be confused. You'll have pestilence and famine. And check this out. And a foreign enemy that you've never heard of will sweep in and destroy you via a siege that starves you out. Then they will deport you and destroy your city. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact playbook that Ezekiel's living through. He spelled it out 750 years before it happened. How much warning do you need? 750 years, he describes it to a T, everything they're going through. This is not an instant, I'm angry, I'm just blowing up, I can't control my temper. This is, you signed a contract over and over and over with me. And this is where you're like, well, pastor, hold on. I can't remember yesterday, much less 750 years ago. All right, so let's talk about that. God instituted priests in the land whose whole job was to talk about this. Their buddies, the Levites, their whole job was to help you understand it. That's their whole job. By the way, in Ezekiel's day, they probably only had five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. When your Bible only contains five books and they're all about this, I think you should know. 
because you just had it baked in you for 750 years. But they blew it right away. You're like, well, if they blew it right away, how come he didn't follow through on the contract? Because he's so loving and patient. That's why. He kept waiting and waiting and waiting, calling and wooing and trying to win them back, begging them to come back. Guys, turn it around, turn it around, turn it around, turn it around. Man, with David, I'm going to try to lift this up. And then, no, 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 you guys failed again. Let me try again. Let's do it again. Let me do that. How many times do you have to have adultery pulled on you over how many hundreds of years before you start to do something? That's how he felt. Hundreds of years. Even we get to 722 BC, and all of a sudden there's a north and a south to Israel, and God's like, listen, I'm sick and tired of it. I can't do it anymore. I'm going to pull our contract. And he brings in the Assyrian Empire, and they knock out the north. He says to the south, this is a warning for you. You just saw it happen. I pulled their contract, and I'm going to do the same to you. Then gave him another 167 years to figure it out. 167 years? Do you understand the patience? Do you understand the love? Do you understand the extreme grace that he's operating in? Stop what you're doing. I don't want to do this. God doesn't just think through a legal lens. Hey, you guys violated section B918.053. And boy, does that tick me off. Everything for him is relational. He uses metaphors in the Bible that Israel's like his spouse. You remember that? So when she's unfaithful, that's adultery. One of the most common words in the book of Ezekiel is passionate jealousy, where God is just like, dude, I'm coming in hot. This is not just simply a contract for me. I have poured every bit of me into you, and I have done everything, and you've used all my gifts for other guys. I'm heartbroken. I'm terrified by what is happening to my people. And then whenever he had to talk about the fact that they were never equals, that he's God and they're not, he would use a different metaphor. He'd say, you're like my children. You're rebellious and I got to come in and correct you. You don't, you don't dis, you know, discipline and correct your spouse. That wouldn't be appropriate. So he starts talking in a child language and starts saying, man, I have to come in here. Stop being rebellious. Because I love you as my child. You're breaking my heart. I don't know what more I could do for you. I'm chasing you with love. I'm chasing you with blessing. I'm doing everything I possibly could, but you will not listen to me. So I told you, two things are going to explain it. Number one is the covenant. That's what they signed. It was spelled out. Everything that's happening to them, they signed. Number two, Israel's uniqueness, right? Let's talk about that for a second. They were formed for the sheer reason that they would be a people that shows the world who God is. And they were ruining their job. And God can't have them just mess up because it's affecting the rest of the world. There are people, pagan people all over the planet that are supposed to have been able to look at Israel and say, I just need hope. They were so busy with their own stuff, they didn't even bother. He said, people are being hurt on your watch, and you're not fulfilling the job I asked you to do. You're not fulfilling the purpose for which I built you. I 
can't let this go on. Enough is enough. Greater responsibility, greater accountability because I gave you greater access to me and greater blessings. Now here's what's fascinating to me. In the midst of all of that, being cheated on for hundreds of years, dealing with a rebellious child that will not listen, having his heart broken over and over and over, we are at the place where he has to hit a reset button and take his people out of their land. Yet here is his heart. This is crazy. Ezekiel 18.30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord Yahweh. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity lead to your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why do you want to die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. Turn and live. That's still his heart. He can't shake his love. Even while he's destroying them, he's crying out, do it different. I don't want any of this. I never wanted this. But I've lost you. I've lost your heart and I can't get you back. So I gotta start over again. But understand, I don't get blessed. I don't get benefited by bringing judgment. All it does is hurt me. I don't want this. That's the heart of God. Oh, the Old Testament God's different than the New Testament God, huh? Nope. Same yesterday, today, and forever. He was compassionate, loving, and patient then, and he is compassionate, loving, and patient now. Now, the difference for us is Jesus Christ on the cross. He came and died for the sins of the world. He applies that to the account of everyone that comes before him. He purifies their spirit, dies for their sins, cleanses us past, present, and future, gives us the Holy Spirit inside of us. So yes, we live a different reality. But that doesn't mean that we can continue to hurt our God. Do we still have a lot of the same problems they had? Yes. Are we still hurting his heart? Yeah. And I just don't think it's right. Just because Jesus died for it doesn't mean it's not a big deal. Right? They lost their first love. And it led them into a crazy, dangerous slide. I don't want to be that guy. But if I don't watch it, I am that guy. You're a pastor. It doesn't matter. I'm a human. We're all in this together, amen? And what that means is we gotta watch it. There's a lot of stuff pulling on us. There's a lot of stuff getting our head out of the game. You are above all Christians. Don't ever let things take away your love for your Lord. Don't you ever allow something to take priority over your God. He is the only one that ultimately matters. And so that's what I said when you get done with this message, how was church? Is it important? Yeah. Does it feel good? Not really. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Let's close it out and get out of here. You see, the prayer team is here each and every week 
because the messages stir stuff up. There are some of us here today that you've realized through this message, wow, I'm not on point. I got about 13 different things that are ahead of God on my priority list. That's what the prayer team is going to be here for, to pray through that with you. Lord, hear my heart. Help me, Lord. I don't want to be lost to those things. I don't want to be following other things. God, free me. Change my heart. Change my mind. That's why we're here at church. And so I just want to encourage you, utilize the prayer team. That's what they want to be here for. They want to help you pray breakthrough. Ready to get out of here? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness. You've always been the patient one, always the loving one. That even, God, when we read the Old Testament and it seems like you're so vicious, we get to see the other side about how loving you are. So, God, I just pray that we would begin to love you more. Too many of us, Lord, we're trying really hard to be moral. We just don't really love you all that much. And it's just made us bitter and angry. God, I pray that you would just help us to be lovers of you, worshipers of you. That, Lord, that we're able to let go of all the, oh, the world is about me, and God, would you just re-rack our heads? Because every time, Lord, we have our eyes on ourselves, we end up really disappointed, really frustrated. We feel like there's no point, but God, in you, there's always a point. So I pray right now, Lord, that you would rescue us from ourselves that you would cleanse us, purify us, and get our head in the game and allow us to know that you are what it's all about. May you be praised in Jesus' name, amen.